From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How much policing is the right amount of policing? We visit one community where they're trying to find a balance. Then reforming the social justice system requires listening to different perspectives. So once again, despite the vision that I had gathered for myself in jail of getting a job, making it to college and staying out of the drug game, I was having to consider going back into it, possibly risking my freedom and my life. A shared experience to foster change, plus protecting the delicate permafrost at the top of the Rockies, and stepping up efforts to keep a historic black homestead in Colorado from fading away altogether. They really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. I'm Francie Swidler, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. It was a 2004 Nissan Pathfinder. It was a really cool car at a certain period in time, and it has seen some things. So it was time for the car to get off the street anyway, and I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. We're going to visit a neighborhood in Denver to hear from residents and police about public safety. Northeast Park Hill is dealing with a spike in violent crime at the same time that people have been calling for police reform. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry has the story about how the community and the department are trying to find the right balance in its policing. Oh, you put them on the table, I can The Northeast Denver Islamic Center sits on a corner in the heart of North Park Hill, one of the city's historically black neighborhoods. On this Friday after services, volunteers from the mosque are handing out food boxes. Assalamu alaikum, Assalamu alaikum. A steady stream of cars from all over pull up, and Adele Choice L is trying to have multiple conversations at the same time. You, you come to a mosque, it's, it's like trying to have a conversation during uh, Thanksgiving. It's, it's not going to happen. Sitting nearby is Imam Abdur Rahim Ali. He's been an activist and community leader in Park Hill for years. When you ask him how he feels about the role of police in the neighborhood, he acknowledges it's complicated. Too many times people are getting stopped on very frivolous stuff. But Imam Ali has also turned to police through the years. In January, he called DPD around the inauguration when he got a federal bulletin warning of violence against mosques. He asked for additional police presence, especially on worship days. So when asked whether he trusts the police, the imam says, sort of. So we, ha- we have to be cautious. You know, the uh, trust but verify rule, you know. So it's a difficult job balancing that for the police. We know that, but that's their job. But officers who have been in the neighborhood a long time acknowledge their job is changing. Commander Kathy Bancroft has been a cop since the 1980s in Denver. She's now in charge of all the officers who patrol Park Hill and still spends time working the beat. Do you have any guns, weapons, bazookas? From her unmarked patrol car, she talked about what she's weathered, the waves of crime here and the various approaches to policing, including one called saturation which the department adopted during times of high gang violence in the past. We would see these spikes in 
different neighborhoods and we'd go in there with everything we had wait for the next place to pop up and we go over there with everything we had and but you can't do that now no we have to be smarter in the way that we do policing Police departments and communities are in sort of a Goldilocks moment about how law enforcement officers should conduct themselves in wake of a national call for police reform. How much policing is too much for a neighborhood like Northeast Park Hill? How much is too little? Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin says he's grappling with the balance. You have to do it in a fair way as well that's not over-policing, and that's a a difficult line to draw at a time when uh, people may be demanding uh, different approaches. Denver police did actually significantly change their approach in Park Hill last year. Officers made 70 percent fewer stops than in previous years after George Floyd's murder in Minnesota. Pazin says that was less about strategy shift than staffing challenges during COVID-19 and the ongoing protests. But depending on who you ask, the policing slowdown may have come with a price. The evidence is overwhelming uh, that proactive policing reduces crime. CU sociologist David Pyrouz studied the links between police stops and crime rates. He found at the same time Denver officers stopped way fewer people in cars in the neighborhood, violent crime went up by more than 120 percent. Professor Pyrouz can't say for sure why crime rates spike and fall, but believes there is likely some correlation around stops by law enforcement officers. Because when cops stop someone for even something minor— they may be stopping something bigger. Seeing weapons or other forms of contraband in a vehicle, uh, that, you know, it could may very well be intercepting somebody on the way to commit a robbery, a burglary, or a retaliatory shooting. Park Hill isn't the only area where violent crime is on a dramatic rise. It's happening throughout the city. Gun crimes in particular are higher than they've been in years. Recently, DPD announced it is trying a new approach they hope will disrupt criminals without leaving communities feeling over-policed. The department plans to target five neighborhoods, including North Park Hill, with resources and more patrols. And Pazin says they also want to bring in a lot more additional services so police can focus on crime and other groups can help the community with other problems. So if we can work on these areas and reduce that, even if it's, you know, a, a modest decrease, you're going to save lives. You're going to prevent, you know, harm to our community. Yeah, I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what your experience is. No one says we just want less police here. State Senator James Coleman represents this neighborhood at the Capitol, where he has worked on police reform. He tracks relationships between law enforcement and his constituents. And as a black father, he's had candid conversations with his twins, they're not even teenagers yet, about how to conduct themselves in front of the police. He says it's not about less policing, it's about correct policing. I think the concern, again, is if there is a need for police, how they engage and interact, and that that data and information is reported. And then number two, creating the conditions by which there's less crime. The stakes are particularly high for people who both live and own businesses in this neighborhood. Hey man, how, how long have y'all been open? Is that right? Mississippi boy Catfish and Ribs opened a few months ago right in the heart of North Park Hill. While owner Ty Allen was fixing the space up, getting it ready to open, he called the police a couple of times on suspicious people. He says officers were too slow to respond, but that it's gotten better. 
they're always they're always available to have a conversation. I'm not uh, giving praise where it's not due. They've done a good job. In his first few weeks of being open, Allen says his place has been packed, that the neighborhood is enthusiastic about having something positive in this space. The dining room has open garage-style windows. There is a grand piano in the lounge, and the smell of smoked meats drifts out from the kitchen. Smoked wings, turkey legs, uh, cornbread, freshly made, by the way. Edward Milton works in Allen's kitchen and has lived in Northeast Park Hill his whole life. He says he welcomes seeing more police in the neighborhood. As a community, we're kind of broken right now, so we definitely need to need more police here to, to stop the crime rate. We just made number five on the news for the most crime rate in Colorado, and that's sad. You know, we, we shouldn't be that way. Milton and others I talked with in Park Hill say they don't dislike seeing police officers here, but they do have expectations high expectations in how they act and do their jobs in this new climate. And Allison Cherry joins us now. Hi, Allison. Hello, Avery. You end by mentioning the neighborhood's high expectation for police. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, you know, the story alluded to this a little, but the many people I talked to, you know, just it was it struck me. They didn't really want fewer police cars in the neighborhood. They didn't want to see fewer police officers in the neighborhood. They just wanted correct policing in the neighborhood. You know, they wanted the police to focus on the big stuff. Um, They want them to be held to a high standard. And, you know, I talked to Commander Bancroft at length about this, and she told me this interesting story about a time during covid When some of her officers were responding to an incident at a house involving a juvenile threatening suicide, the cops went over to where the kid was supposedly staying. She and they talked to the grandmother and they were apparently pretty brusque with her. Um, And that brusqueness, you know, at this delicate time rubbed the grandmother the wrong way. So she reached out to Bancroft to complain. And now that everyone's vaccinated, Commander Bancroft's going to take her officers over to the grandmother's house and they're going to have a big talk. And she says she wants these things to be teachable moments for officers, that how they talk to people matters, that, you know, but she wants people to acknowledge that officers do have hard jobs. We don't know which call they just came from when they went over to this, you know, this other, um, you know, house. And they do have, but they do, it's part of their job to separate something terrible that they may have just responded to from the next call and something that she's she's working on and takes seriously. In the story, you focused really specifically on what's happening in one part of Denver, but it does tie into some broader changes that are happening in policing, right? Yeah, and I I would say that right now policing is at a real crossroads today, and that's thanks in part to the summer of reckoning following George Floyd's murder, you know, all the protests. I think people are scrutinizing the actions of police across the country very closely. I think they're pushing for reform within departments and at state legislatures. That, of course, includes Colorado and and Denver police. Um, And, you know, this also, but I have to say, this also comes at a time when crime, including violent crime, has just skyrocketed across the state and in the city. So people are calling police more than they were. I've looked at call numbers, and they're way higher than they used to be. And that's because of this. And people would say they need police right now because of this. So it's kind of an interesting mix of dynamics happening all, all at once. There's a term that you used in the story that caught my ear, a Goldilocks moment for policing. Yeah. Um, me and my editor went back and forth a lot on this word. I, I just wanted to make sure people understood it, right? You remember the fairy tale, right? Mm-hmm. That Goldilocks wanted her porridge to be just right, not too hot, not too cold. And I think police are trying to figure out the balance of 
over-policing or under-policing, particularly in neighborhoods like North Park Hill. You know, in the story, you know, last year, police stops in that neighborhood went down 70 percent. And I think some people would say that was under-policing. So now they're trying to figure the balance out. You said in the story, DPD does have a new approach it's taking in Park Hill and some other parts of Denver. Are there more details on how that'll work? Uh, not not a ton of new details. It's still really early. But the way I understand it, kind of the Reader's Digest version, is that officers are going to kind of go into small targeted areas. There are five in the city where there have been very high crime rates um, mm. and bring other community resources with them, you know, people to help with housing and mental health. Addiction is a huge thing. So police focus on interrupting the crime, which they say sometimes actually causes gaps in the community. Like if you interrupt a big drug ring, for example, um, the idea is that other people, non-police mm-hmm. community groups, swoop in and fill fill the, fill the space when, when the police, you know, stop something. Allison, thank you so much. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. I'm Avery Lill, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Reforming the criminal justice system involves listening, listening to all perspectives without judgment. That's one of the goals behind the Just Us monologues through the Modus Theater in Boulder. It elevates the stories of people who've experienced incarceration and its impact on their lives by asking people in positions of public power to read their words. Brian Mason is the district attorney in Colorado's 17th Judicial District, which includes Adams and Broomsfield counties. He recently read the story of Joaquin Mobley. Thank you, Joaquin. It's an honor to be with you tonight and with everyone else. It's really important to me as the district attorney to see the criminal justice system through multiple perspectives, not just my own. And it's particularly important for me to see it through the eyes of someone like you, Joaquin, who has been through the system and has been impacted by it for your entire life. And now I'll read Joaquin Mobley's autobiographical monologue entitled, Unhirable. It's late fall, 2002, and I'm 18 years old, full of strength and light. I tripped all the way from Washington Heights in Manhattan to Flushing, Queens, the last stop on the seven train. Down to my last, I traveled to Home Depot to be interviewed for a job. Filled with hope and cloaked in desperation, I walked in to meet my potential new employer. His name was Sheldon. We interviewed and I killed it. I killed it. I'm sure Sheldon felt my hunger. I detected his Caribbean accent and I tried to find common ground, being that my father was from that part of the world. And I too was raised in that culture of hard work. He bought in on me working there. He told me how much I was going to love the job and that I would make good money. Sheldon then took my social security number and stepped behind his desk to run it through the system. I would not let myself feel anything but confident as he typed in the nine digits that would determine my possibilities. I insisted on the image of him returning to me with his hand held out, ready to shake, and that I would return to my abuela with the reassurance of a new job. I had to. Earlier that morning, the stakes had been raised. 
I had been startled awake. The sounds of batata music, sobbing, police sirens, and soft conversation between two individuals outside my building discussing the terms and conditions of the pre-purchase of narcotics. But those sounds are not what woke me up. The noise of my neighborhood had become my background music and in a weird way, it helped me sleep better. I could usually drown out even the loudest of those sounds, but that morning had been different. Something was wrong. There was no sweet, beautiful aroma of fried yucca, eggs and onions that my abuela makes for me in my abuelo every morning. Nor did I hear the sound of Telemundo coming underneath my bedroom door. When I opened the door to my room, still halfway asleep, I discovered that the sobbing sound that I had grown immune to was coming not from outside, but from our family living room. It was my abuela who was sobbing. I ran to her side and kneeled down in front of her. ¿Qué estás pasando, abuela? She handed me two letters, one for my abuelo, stating that he would not receive his social security for another year, and another from public housing, informing my grandparents that because I was on probation for a felony drug conviction, I had to leave my home or my entire family would be evicted. It's amazing what a day brings and takes from us in our poverty-stricken communities. Just the night before, I had a feeling of stability and hope. After all, I had an actual interview for a job. Do you know how many applications an 18-year-old Black man has to fill out before they even get an interview? It was going to happen. My baby's mothers needed money for diapers and food and I was going to have it. But now, looking at those letters and my abuela sobbing, the challenge was overwhelming. I didn't need just enough to support my kids and to start college. I now needed enough for rent, a security deposit and utilities, or hold the possibility of being homeless. And I had to figure out how to help my abuela pay her rent with no social security coming in. So once again, despite the vision that I had gathered for myself in jail of getting a job, making it to college and staying out of the drug game, I was having to consider going back into it and possibly risking my freedom and my life. In the last year, I had already lost two friends, murdered over rivalry for selling territory. Trying to stay strong for my abuela, I kissed her and walked away to prepare for my interview at Home Depot in a new state of mind, one now heavy with threat and despair. But you can't let people see that and think that they will hire you. I showered and dressed and used every item of clothing I put on to build me up, to regain my hope, so I could get on that train and feel it all somehow working out. So there I was sitting in Sheldon's office, practically praying when his head finally reemerged from behind his computer screen. But by just looking at his face, I could tell immediately 
that everything had changed. I was now dead to him, or at least untouchable. He wouldn't even look at me. The numbers had rolled out, and I was officially unhirable. I started talking fast, trying to regain my ground. I told him I could be on a probation period or something like that, that, that I needed this job to take care of my kids. I shared what I was up against economically. He was unmoved. And his response to my sob story was just, sorry. But I was not going home without a job. Please, Sheldon, listen. I'm trustworthy. On a, I'm an honorable man. I'm asking for a shot, an opportunity, and a chance. He just looked at me, impervious to what I was going through, and asked that I leave the premises. I left, not only the premises, but New York. My mom lived out in Colorado Springs, and I hoped to find work through her connections and stay out of the drug game. When I got to Colorado, I was surrounded by job offers in the community, none of them legal. Did you know that according to the Brookings Institute, a black man without a criminal record is less likely to get called back for a job than a white man who checked the felony box? I went to prison in 2006 and was given twice the time for the same crime as the two white men who went up in front of the judge before me. That startled me awake, even more than the cries of my abuela. I was awake and angry with the injustices of it and fierce with an intention of alchemy to take all the steel, concrete, brutality, and disregard they gave me as DOC number 147, 388, and turn it into my own armor. I may have to fight to survive, but I will not be your entertainment. I am not your victim, and I will not let you make me your victim. Every day I gave myself a new challenge to help me keep my focus and sanity. First, I built up my chest and biceps. Then I learned how to read and write in the language of my abuelos. Spanish. After that, I learned to read Arabic, the language of the Black leaders in prison who were resisting with self-respect, self-love, and prayer. I re-enrolled in college and got several certifications despite all the obstacles to getting an education in prison. And even with this arsenal of strengths, it was hard to stay out of prison when I was finally released. They let me out with just $10 in my pocket, no fresh clothes, and no hope. I almost didn't make it, despite my nearly 10 years preparing for that very moment. But I did. And now I work to support other people coming out of our prison system, guiding them as they take the skills they learned in illegal economies and transform themselves into entrepreneurs with legal opportunities. Because this system wastes our brilliance. Thank you.
That's Brian Mason, the district attorney in Adams and Broomfield counties. He read the words of Joaquin Mobley for the Just Us monologues through Boulder's Modus Theater. The project explores different perspectives to work toward criminal justice reform. Let's rejoin the conversation now as the two reflect on what happened to Mobley. First, D.A. Mason. It was really emotional for me to read that story. Uh, I could feel the emotion building up in, in, in my body as I was reading it. And I think what was profoundly impactful to me was as I was reading his story and his words, feeling his desperation in that moment to provide for his abuela, for his children, and the sense of despair when Sheldon looked at a number, social security number, and saw some history and dismissed him. That was um, very profound for me. Yeah, um, just the fact that he was able to really, uh, you know, step in my place and, and, sit and kind of stand in my shoes and, and read the story with such like uh, sentiments and such feelings. And it, it was like, you could feel it like he was really there, um, you know, and, and that alone is really what's going to keep this dialogue going um, and just keep this push and this fight for, uh, you know, some of the, uh, the Department of Incorrection <laughs> uh, going on. So thank you, DA Mason. I appreciate you. It's a privilege, Joaquin. It's a privilege to uh, engage with you and to have read your story, truly. Mason and Mobley also reflected on what Mobley's story says about systemic issues and the larger impact one person's experience can have on the overall community. I think as the elected district attorney, what really stuck out to me and what really impacts me was his inability to get a job after serving his time. He had served his time. And my, my job is to, what I always say, are my, the two pillars of my job is to, to make the community safe and to make the criminal justice system better. And it doesn't make our community safe if when someone has served their time and they get out of prison, they can't get a job. And it certainly doesn't make our criminal justice system better. So that is a powerful example of the failures of our criminal justice system. And the statistic that was read about from the Brookings Institute is a powerful example of systemic racism. It just is. You just can't hear that statistic and possibly deny it. So as a public official, when I read those words and thought about the fact that even after serving his time, he couldn't, he couldn't turn his life around because he wasn't given the chance. And he genuinely thought about having to return to a life that had put him in prison, uh, a life of, of having to turn to drugs or to dealing drugs. And I don't know exactly what, Joaquin, and I don't want my words to be put in the place of yours, but, but, but the, the monologue powerfully talks about how you, you, you thought about it and you had to because you needed to put food on your table. That's a failure of the criminal justice system. I just want everybody to know out there that um, this is a community safety issue, right? So 
it doesn't just affect, um, you know, the small pockets of the community that I come from, um, as well as my colleagues. It also affects, um, you know, people outside of our community. You know what I mean? This is now becoming an issue across the nation and across the world. Um, the only way we're going to combat this is to work together collectively as a community and continue to try to co-elevate. So just keep that in mind, um, you know, while you resonate or you, you really just take in and absorb the story, what can we do together as a community to really build one another up uh, and keep us from going in and making uh, these bad decisions or going down that wrong path? I want to just add one more thing to that last statement. The, the, the failure of our society to give someone a, a chance after they get out of prison or after they've served their time isn't just a failure of the criminal justice system. It's a broader failure of our whole society. And so while we have to have conversations about inequities in the criminal justice system, we have to have that conversation. It can't just be limited to the criminal justice system. There's a greater responsibility on the community and, and our society as a whole and, and other institutions to make sure that when someone has served their time, they can get a job, they can get housing, so that they're not going back into the criminal justice system. And that starts, honestly, way before the moment that we're talking about. It has to start in, in, in school, it has to start um, with, our, with our families and, and young people, our education system. So I guess it's not just the failures of the criminal justice system in, the, in this regard, but a, a, a broader, broader failure and the broader work we all have to do as a society to address this problem. Joaquin Mobley spent nearly a decade incarcerated in Colorado. He worked hard to overcome the obstacles he faced and is now the vice president of Community Works, co-owner of Community Ties and the Community Barbershop based out of Colorado Springs. He says it all started with his daughter. I would like to say that the reason why I turned it around is I had a really good conversation with my daughter when I was released. And she said, dad, we, we, we stuck with you this time, but if you go back, me and my sister were not staying around. And so that really woke me up. So that was really like the impetus for me really to, to get it together. Uh, and yeah, fortunately, um, a, a Muslim brother of mine uh, who I was incarcerated with, um, he used to just observe me and see how I carried myself in there. And when he got out, he had a job opportunity for me. And uh, it actually helped me uh, get on my feet. Absolutely. That's Joaquin Mobley, who shared his story about incarceration and the impact on his life. We also heard from District Attorney Brian Mason, who represents the 17th Judicial District in Colorado. That includes Adams and Broomfield counties. Their discussion is part of the Just Us monologues through Boulder's Modus Theater. And our thanks to Modus Theater for sharing that audio with us. We'll put a link to the entire conversation at CPR.org. The Mount Evans Highway made international news after it was built nearly a hundred years ago. The triumph of man's engineering skill over the towering stronghold of Mount Evans in the Rockies. 14,000 feet up against a Colorado sky is what is claimed to be the highest roadway in the world. 
that engineering marvel has since deteriorated and damaged the tundra around it. But as CPR's Nathaniel Miner reports, a plan is underway to fix both. Sections of the highway that lead to the top of Mount Evans look more like a stunt bike track and less like a road for cars. It's like roly-poly, bumpy, you hit the potholes. Maria Gorecki drove the road on a recent morning with her family. She's one of the many locals and tourists who drive to the top of the 14,000-foot peak every summer. You've got the steep drop-off, and then you've got the marmots that are sunning, and then you've got the goats that are crossing. It's awesome. I mean, it could be repaired, but it's fun. It's a fun road. Repairs are coming, but this road is no ordinary highway. It's still the highest paved road in North America. Snow keeps it closed about nine months out of the year. CDOT Environmental Program Manager Francesca Tordonato says it cuts through delicate ecosystems. So it's really important to be able to reconstruct this highway in a, in a very sensitive manner that um, takes all of those factors into consideration. One section of road near Summit Lake has needed repairs for a long time. And now scientists know why road conditions here are so bad. The first thing to consider is the ground it's built on. Most soil up here is frozen year-round, about five feet below the surface but not under the road. There, the pavement is soaking up warmth from the sun and melting the permafrost below it. Certainly the road has contributed to melting that permafrost, and so you get into these freeze-thaw cycles. The constant freezing and thawing causes it to heave and sink over and over. And on its own, that'd be bad enough. But there's something else at play here, too. Water. Above the road, snow melts and cascades more or less evenly down the mountain slope. But then it hits a ditch right next to the road and turns into a channel. Colorado State University research scientist Jeremy Shaw says that water seeps under the road and helps conduct heat. And so the asphalt pavement and the water that is collected under it has formed this feedback loop to where it melts the permafrost, creates a trench in the permafrost that then traps more water, more heat, more melting, blah, 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 blah. So it's just this runaway feedback loop. Shaw says those two things, constantly shifting temperatures and lots of water, are why the highway is so bad. Some of the bumps and dips are three feet big. I don't know if you ever played Mario Kart. Yes. You know Wario Stadium? It's been a long time, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that. And believe, I, believe me, I've seen some people take some unplanned jumps on the road, for sure. It's not just the road that's suffering. The ditch and the road itself are diverting water, flooding some areas and leaving others dry. And that is causing some big changes. So in areas where it's dried up, we found that certain mosses and plant species were eliminated. A lot of these pools are unvegetated, just bare sediment bottoms, and they are being invaded by subalpine plant species that normally don't occur in the alpine. Shaw says the warming climate is allowing those new plant species to move in. Just a few hundred feet away, water travels under the road through a culvert. It's completely flooded the land here. Just one type of grass has survived. Shaw says all these hydrological changes are destroying a big piece of why so many people travel here in the first place. People come up here for the ecosystems. People come up here for the flowers. So if we start eliminating species from this landscape, the flower show is going to start to get less interesting for us. All that can feel overwhelming, but Shaw says they have a pretty good idea of how to fix it. 
He says the existing road should be torn out, and a new one built on top of grapefruit and basketball-sized rocks. That would allow water to travel under the road more evenly, and for heat to escape before it melts the permafrost. It took Shaw and other scientists three years of study to get to this moment. Shaw says it's been worth it. Well, the, the world is full of problems, but our job is to, to help understand those problems so that we can develop solutions. And what is cooler than that? We don't yet know if those ideas will actually be used. The Federal Highways Administration is in the early stages of designing what the rebuilt road will look like. Construction is scheduled to begin in 2024. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. State lawmakers and local officials in northern Colorado are ramping up efforts to restore what remains of a historic black settlement there. In the early 1900s, the little farming community of Deerfield thrived on the plains east of Greeley. At one point, it embodied the dreams of the people who homesteaded there. They really felt like they could get away from the oppression. They really felt like Deerfield had potential. That's Terry Nelson with Blair Caldwell African American Research Library in Denver. She's one of the several experts featured in a documentary about Deerfield called Remnants of a Dream. Charles Knuckles directed the film. He spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner last year. You know, a phrase we heard just there struck me that they really felt like they could get away from oppression. Say more about that, like Deerfield as an oasis. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson believed that a generation beyond emancipation, uh, African-Americans had created religious institutions and educational institutions, but now it was time to develop industrial businesses that would provide employment opportunities. Let me just say that O.T. Jackson was the founder of Deerfield. Yes, he was. Originally from Oxford, Ohio. Uh, He came to Colorado in 1877. He settled in Boulder. He was a caterer, a restaurateur, and eventually um, he became involved in Colorado politics. And he wanted a new economic opportunity, a new kind of future. Yes, he followed the teachings of Booker T. Washington, one of the prominent race leaders at the time, uh, who believed that the, the key was a back-to-the-land movement where the best practices would lie in self-help for blacks, independent self-reliance. And Deerfield was an embodiment of that self-reliance. Absolutely. O.T. Jackson wanted to create a community where African-Americans would cooperate with one another, both in business and civic activities, and create a place where people could have some input and thrive. Because... Uh, Let's face it, blacks were systematically excluded from many of the um, public sector uh, systems created by the white majority. It's very interesting. Just from my Jewish perspective, it sounds very much like the intention behind a kibbutz, this idea of being connected to the land and the community as incredibly tight-knit. And this was a time when nationalist movements were... Um, popular. And and Theodore Herschel created the idea that there ought to be a Jewish state around this same time. And for African-Americans, this was the idea that you could empower yourself as a people, that you could really create your own community. So when Deerfield was in its heyday, uh, what was it like for the folks there? Like, what did the community look like? and, And what were the businesses that you'd see? Deerfield thrived for a time from about 
1915 to 1920, the zenith of that time really being 1917 to 1920. But there were fairs that would be held in Deerfield, and the governor would come out to award prizes for the most prized fruits and vegetables grown, or the best livestock or cattle that was grown. So there were picnics and fishing parties and dancing. There were churches, um, a missionary society. Deerfield was a thriving community. This was a full-time community. This was not like a kind of weekend retreat or something. These were homesteaders. Yeah. So you had to file a land claim and you had to prove up that land. Therefore, you had to live on the land for a certain number of time, amount of time. You had to document your improvements. And if you met all the government requirements, you then own that land. So there are descendants perhaps today who still have claim to that land. Do you know? Well, one uh, interesting story. And this is a typical story of the American West and settling the American West is that of the Groves family. And Walker Groves was one of O.T. Jackson's last farmhands, and his sons owned some property in the settlement. But Walker Groves was um, bucking hay one day with a team of mules who ran away from him. And unfortunately, he was um, injured very badly, so badly to the point where he died because he was impaled by the buckrake. And his son uh, refuses to go back to the land that they even owned because, as he puts it, the farm killed my daddy, so I'm never going back to the farm. Oh, my goodness. Just a picture of what life was like at that time. Let's talk about some of the interesting personalities, the notable people who settled along with O.T. Jackson in Deerfield. Who, who stands out? Well, one person that stands out is Dr. Westbrook. Um, Dr. Westbrook was a successful Denver physician. This is Henry Peter Westbrook. That's right. I Dr. Just, Joseph Henry Peter Westbrook. I just learned about him, actually. Isn't this the guy who infiltrated the Klan? He did. He had blonde hair and blue eyes, and he could have passed for white if he wanted to. So what he would do is he would go to Klan meetings, he would listen to what was being proposed by the Klan and go back and report that to members of the black community. Uh, he was quite an interesting fellow. He was uh, at Denver General Hospital for 17 years. He spoke to religious and civic groups all over Denver about equality. Um, he was really quite a fascinating man, not only because he named Deerfield, but he was one of Denver's most prominent African-American citizens. He had named Deerfield. And is it simply that the fields were dear to them? And that is why it's spelled D-E-A-R yeah. and not D-E-E-R, because the idea was that this was such an important effort to these people that it was something that was special, emotional, even spiritual to many of them. And dear. Did they face a lot of discrimination in Colorado, and how did that compare to other parts of the country, would you say? Well, they certainly faced um, some discrimination. Many would argue that it perhaps was not as bad as the kind of discrimination that people would face in the South. Colorado was never a slave state, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination. And it, it, certainly there was enough discrimination they felt they needed to get away from it. Absolutely. 
And that was O.T. Jackson never really had the idea that he wanted to create a separate community, but he wanted to create a community where African-Americans could have some input with regard to how their lives were governed. But even Jackson would face discrimination as well. Yeah, you talked a little bit about his background. So this is O.T. Jackson, Oliver Toussaint Jackson. Um, He was from Ohio, I think you said. Uh, What drew him to Colorado in the first place? The idea of the promise of the American West is what drove O.T. Jackson to Colorado. A familiar theme for settlers. Absolutely. And he became involved in uh, Democratic Party politics in 1906. And this is a time when many African-Americans were Republicans. The Party of Lincoln. The Party of Lincoln, the Party of Emancipation, the Party of Freedom. But Jackson felt as if by getting politically active, he would have better access to government officials and be better empowered to be able to create some of these initiatives that he wanted to. And quite the entrepreneur as well. I mean, beyond Deerfield. Absolutely. Um, Jackson had big ideas. Um, He is someone who first became a caterer. He was a caterer at Chautauqua in Boulder. Um, He managed the the, uh, kitchen facilities there. He owned a couple of restaurants in Boulder. But something that many people may not be aware of was just to the extent of his work in politics. This has been just fascinating for me to learn about. He held a job known as messenger with six different governors for 28 years. He served, you know, both political parties. What was this role, messenger? A gubernatorial messenger conveyed communications, transported documents and handled confidential and sensitive material, uh, much of which we may do electronically today. But at the turn of the last century, people relied on trusted people to be able to handle these tasks. And Jackson was so well-liked and so trusted that he was reappointed by multiple administrations. But even being that close to state government still did not um, free him from aspects of discrimination. And in one particular um, story stands out. Yeah, tell me of that. Well, in, in 1929, Jackson needed to get some documents to the governor who was staying at the Brown Palace Hotel. And the Brown Palace Hotel, is a, as many people know, is a hotel here in Denver. Yeah, quite fancy, even now. And then it must have just been, you know, a sparkling. Well, Jackson something. went into the hotel. He went to use the elevators and was told that because he was a black man, he would not be able to use the elevator to deliver the documents he needed to to the governor. Jackson said, yes, I am indeed a black man, but since I am a government official, I've been a taxpayer in Colorado for 42 years, I don't see any reason why I can't use a public elevator in dispatching my duties as messenger. He was still refused. So Jackson walked up four flights of stairs, delivered the documents to the governor, walked back down the four flights of stairs, never to return to the Brown Palace Hotel again. Hmm. And he held these duties at the same time that he's trying to make Deerfield thrive. But we know, just based on seeing what Deerfield is today, that it, it did not persevere. What happened? 
Well, several things happened, and Deerfield was a dry land farming operation. They did not have access to water. It took money to buy water rights. So they started when there was a wet cycle in the Colorado climate. I see. And they could grow anything during that time, during that wet cycle, and they did. They really thrived, really prospered. But once that wet cycle ended, the water dried up, and then you had the rural depression that started in the early 1920s. Most people think of the Great Depression as when the stock market crashed in 1929, but for many rural communities all across America, the Depression started in the early 20s. Then you've got the Dust Bowl, right? That, that doesn't help. The Dust Bowl was really the, the final, final blow to the colony. What do you feel when you're out there? Just, we have a few seconds left. Uh, you feel the isolation, just how desolate this area is. It's a hard place to live. It's a hard place to live now. And in 1910, one can only imagine how hard it would be to live there. And the spirit of the people who, who tried. They were among the most determined people you, you could find because they wanted to create a better life for themselves and for their children. That's Charles Knuckles, director of Remnants of a Dream, the story of Deerfield, Colorado. He spoke with Brian Warner in 2020. Thank you for joining us and the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.